I'm Andrew Faust here at the Center for Bioregional Living and today I'd like to talk about what is the meaning of life? How do we navigate our existence on a planet where we're constantly back and forth from a state of exploitation at the hands of the few who are hoarding and never sharing with the many. How do we make it through a situation where we have a potential for a world war on our hands right now? And what are some lessons from history that we can learn as we look forward to moving into the unknown? I'm Andrew Faust with the Permaculture Perspectives Podcast. And I'm going to start out for you with a reading from my latest inspiration. It is called Verses from the Center, A Buddhist Vision of the Sublime by Stephen Batchelor. And this is about a philosopher in Buddhism who's one of my inspirations. His direction is one that I particularly appreciate because Nagarjuna really dives deep into our tendency to want to have answers and to want to pursue some sort of, oh, shall we call it human-defined version of escape or as it's sometimes called in Buddhism, nirvana. And here's a passage from Nagarjuna. And a little more about him. 2,500 years ago, an Indian prince abandoned his prestige and power to pursue an understanding of reality that would lead to the end of suffering for all beings. The Buddha's vision of unending interdependence, contingency, flux, and openness was the basis on which he achieved enlightenment and thus ended his own suffering. What the Buddha saw when he awoke to the truth of his existence is one of the most intriguing insights in all of human history. Over the centuries, meditators, scholars, and translators have written treatises and commentaries on this central vision. It is the source of all that is paradoxical in Zen and lies at the heart of the Buddhist philosophy that has captured the imagination of the West. Verses from the Center is one of Buddhism's greatest reflections on the meaning of life, written by its most mysterious and legendary master, Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna lived in India during the second century as a monk, meditator, and philosopher. Some believe he visited the mystical land of the Nagas to retrieve the Buddha's hidden wisdom teachings. Others believe he achieved immortality and re-emerged as a tantric saint in 8th century India. Even today, his myth and legend are alive in the Himalayan foothills. 
What has never been disputed is that Nagarjuna's verses are the quintessential expression of the Buddhist notion of the sublime. So a couple key ones that I particularly liked that I'm going to share with you. This one is entitled Change. If something has an essence, how can it ever change into anything else? A thing doesn't change into something else. Youth does not age. Age does not age. If something changed into something else, milk would be butter, or butter would be milk. Were there a trace of something, there would be no trace of emptiness. Were there no trace of anything, there would be no trace of emptiness. Buddhas say emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. And then this one, entitled Essence. If my essence came from causes and conditions, it would have been constructed. Essences are neither contingent nor contrived. If I have no essence, how can you? What is other for me is for you, your own. How can you not be yourself or someone else? Without something, there could be no nothing. Do not people say a thing becomes nothing when it changes into something else? You who behold... Some things and nothings, yourselves and others, are blind to what the Buddha taught. Through understanding some things and nothings, Gautama told Katyayana to relinquish being and nothingness. If I had an essence, I would never cease to be me. My nature could never be anything else. If I had no essence, whose nature would it be to be anything else? I am me. I will never not be. The longing for eternity. I used to be. I am not anymore. The cut of annihilation. The sage avoids being and nothingness. here's some of our last insights from Nagarjuna for our times that I'll share with you today. This one is entitled, Life. Is life what drives me? Whether constant or fleeting, drives are not alive like life. How am I alive when I cannot be found inside this mind or body. Who is there to be alive? If I survived by clinging on to thoughts and feelings, 
How could I evolve? Without clinging or evolving, who can be alive? If I came and went, how could I be freed? If clinging binds, I who cling would be unbound like those who do not cling. How is it I am trapped? Neither bound nor unbound are free. Were the bound to be freed, freedom and bondage would be simultaneous. I am free, I cling no more, liberation is mine. The greatest clinging is to cling like this. What do you think of a freedom that never happens? What do you make of a life that won't go away? Nagarjuna, verses from the center. Again, as we grapple with the impending realities of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, and we navigate on this planet, we want to remember that we have a place. As we think about the days ahead and our options in relationship to the state of the world and the Russian oppression and invasion of the Ukraine, I wanted to share with you some of my favorite material that I've come across by an author whose name is Wolfgang Schivelbusch. And this is a book that he wrote called The Three New Deals. The Power of Symbols. In a conversation with Hermann Rauschning, the National Socialist who later broke with the party and fled Germany in 1936, Adolf Hitler revealed the origins of his preferred method for influencing public opinion. Quote, I've learned a lot from Marxism, Hitler said, adding, Fundamentally, these new means of political struggle can be traced back to the Marxists. I only needed to adopt and further develop them, and I essentially had what we needed. I just had to continue with greater resolve, where the Social Democrats had failed ten times over because they insisted on trying to achieve their revolution within the framework of democracy. National Socialism is what Marxism could have been if it had freed itself from its absurd artificial connection with the democratic system. End quote. Hitler was also greatly taken with socialists' use of heraldic red as the symbolic color of the party. He recalled his impressions from a mass communist rally in Berlin. There was a sea of red flags, red armbands, and red flowers at the event. Even superficially, it was an impressive sight. I myself could feel and understand how easily the man on the street could fall under the suggestive spell of such a grandiose spectacle. Among the other sources 
National Socialism drew upon were the rites and symbols of the Catholic Church, the formations and decor of the military, and the techniques of modern American-style advertising. In its capacity for universal appropriation, the Nazi Party was anything but historically unique. Symbols continuously consume and are consumed by other symbols, forming a constant accompaniment to the changes of real power they come to represent, be it the adoption of pagan rituals and symbols by Christianity, the appropriation of Christian liturgy by secular revolutions, or the use of all of the above, and indeed every available historical source in advertising. In the 1930s, a symbol came to be considered the main unit of currency in political propaganda, an effective shortcut to understanding and action, in the words of early propaganda expert Edward Bernays. For Howard Laswell, propaganda amounted to the manipulation of collective attitudes by the use of significant symbols, words, pictures, tunes, rather than violence, bribery, or boycott. Yet, if propaganda could do the work of violence, Laswell concluded, the inverse was equally valid. Violence could be an act of propaganda. An act of violence becomes propaganda of the deed when it is expected that the effect on attitudes will be highly disproportionate to the immediate objective consequences of the act. That statement holds true in equal measure for both revolutionary and state-instituted terrorism and Putin's invasion of the Ukraine. Before we proceed to consider the creation and use of symbols by the New Deal and the Third Reich, we might, as a kind of prelude, look at an episode from the final years of the Weimar Republic. Occupying a minor place in the annals of propaganda, the War of Symbols, as it was known, deserves closer inspection. In September 1930, the National Socialists scored a victory in national elections that made the strongest party in the Reichstag. The Nazis' electoral success was a chilling wake-up call for Germany's social democratic center, showing that the means by which the fascists had conquered the streets could also be used to storm the country's political institutions and the state itself. The lesson was doubly bitter. On the one hand, democratic centrists were forced to recognize that the masses apparently welcomed methods that they themselves had rejected as demagogic, pseudo-revolutionary, and quasi-religious, while their own rational arguments met with general indifference or worse, inspired it. On the other hand, they realized to their horror that the methods the Nazis had used to successfully were so, sorry, 
On the other hand, they realized to their horror that the methods the Nazis had used so successfully were nothing more than mimicry of the culture of political militancy that the social democratic movement itself had pioneered in the 19th century. Dumbstruck by the Nazi success, the leaders of the political center responded by insisting even more stringently on rational argumentation and political pedagogy. Yet, within the Social Democratic Party, a minority of young members drew the opposite conclusion, arguing that National Socialism had to be fought with its own means. They urged their comrades to stop trying to counter or, as Julius Leber sarcastically put it, to refute the emotions, fantasies, fears, and actual suffering of the masses with a rational argumentation. The rebels called their movement the Iron Front. The specifics of their new strategy were, however, not a homegrown product, but were based on the insights of a young Russian immigrant. Sergei Shakotin came to propaganda via biology and zoology. A student and colleague of renowned behavioral psychologist Ivan Pavlov, Shakotin was the first to apply the theory of Pavlovian reflexes to the idea of mass suggestion. Having been politicized by the February and October revolutions of 1917, he put his insights into the service of anti-Bolshevism. After relocating to Germany and in the face of the increasingly likely National Socialist Revolution, he felt called to protect his adopted homeland from succumbing to dictatorship. Shakotin drew his inspiration from three sources, the past achievements of the Social Democrats, his own personal experiences during the October Revolution, and the model of National Socialist Propaganda. Shakotin urged the SPD to concentrate on emotional appeals to the electorate, avoiding the emotional vacuum and, quote, pathetic doctrinaire tedium of traditional social democratic agitation. Instead of boring gatherings, he argued, the party should stage dynamic events. Instead of endless debates and discussions, the party should devote itself to grand gestures and bold demonstrations, not of victimization, but of power, purpose, and determination. As though taking a page from the propaganda section in Mein Kampf, Shakotin proposed that social democrats limit their agitation to a handful of the most popular slogans and symbols. These were to be repeated, indeed hammered in, until they became part of the collective subconscious. I'm going to skip ahead here to a section that I particularly think is important and relevant to where we find ourselves today. The propagandistic symbols alone cannot resuscitate an essentially passive and moribund political body. 
It is one thing when an aggressive, unscrupulous, but also dynamic and innovative party like the National Socialists raids the symbolic arsenal of its enemies. It is another when the sheep tries to don the wolf's clothing. Propaganda without real power is nothing but bluster. Propaganda works best in the service of a movement that is already on the rise, and its most effective moment comes in periods of crisis and revolution, when a fading regime is losing its potency and the nation's will is as yet undecided. Then, propaganda can tip the scales, and its slogans articulate the as-yet nebulous popular will. This tipping of the scales is probably what Howard Laswell had in mind when he defined propaganda as a substitute for coercion and violence. Excerpts from the Three New Deals, Reflections on Roosevelt's America, Mussolini's Italy, and Hitler's Germany, 1933-1939, by Wolfgang Schivelbusch. I think those are some important insights for us to be considering as we look at our way forward in a time and a place where history is sadly once again repeating itself. And I'm going to shift gears now and read to you from another text, which is called Garbage Land. And this is one of my favorite topics to dive into from our permaculture perspective. And it is the topic of waste and understanding the difference and the scope and scale of the industrial waste issues. And how do we begin to navigate in the American landscape this tendency to oversimplify and rationalize the use of something that is toxic and hazardous to all life as we know it. Here, what I'm referring to in particular is the misguided notion that sludge from municipal sewage treatment plants is a good thing to be spreading around on farms and agricultural situations. Here, from the book Garbage Land by Elizabeth Royte, R-O-Y-T-E, on the secret trail of trash, we're going to read a section from chapter 11, In the Realm of Taboo. Owl's Head was the end of the line for the water I flushed from my apartment. But the solid portion of my effluent had miles to go, somewhere between the treatment plant in Bay Ridge and a factory on the South Bronx waterfront. My sewage was transformed semantically into, quote, biosolids. The neologism had been forged in the crucible of public relations and fired by the potential for profit. For decades, the DEP had dumped 1,200 tons of sewage a day from a tanker parked 12 miles off the city shore. 
But in 1985, the EPA pronounced the waters near the 12-mile site officially dead. The only shellfish that remained were contaminated with bacteria and heavy metals. Fish showed accumulations of metals and toxic chemicals. In 1988, the city switched to a new site, 106 nautical miles southeast of the harbor. The sludge tankers, which couldn't make the 100-hour trip, were converted into pumper vessels that filled newly built long-haul sludge barges. Before long, though, commercial fishermen who worked near the 106-mile site began to complain of decreased catches and sick fish. Other old and densely populated cities have had similar problems disposing of their sludge. Starting in 1878, Boston sewage was held on Moon Island on the outgoing tides. The facility's gates swung open and the untreated waste was flushed into Boston Harbor. Congress made this nasty habit illegal in 1988 with the Ocean Dumping Reform Act. Boston waited until 1991 when the ban went into effect to quit dumping its 400,000 daily gallons of sludge into the ocean. New York's last load chugged out of New York Harbor aboard the Spring Creek on June 30, 1992. Where would all that sludge go now? Onto farm fields, said the EPA, which had recently declassified the material after it was treated to reduce pathogens from a hazardous waste to a, quote, Class A fertilizer. Oh, that's Class A, all right. The new rules governing sludge policy, dubbed Part 503 by the EPA in 1993, raised the acceptable exposure limits to such toxins as lead, arsenic, mercury, and chromium, so that most of the nation's sludge could be classified as, quote, clean. With this regulatory makeover, a new era of beneficial use, again in quotes, for sludge began. But first, the product needed a new name. Who in their right mind wanted to spread municipal sludge around his backyard? The sewage industry's main trade and lobbying group known today as the Water Environment Federation, WEF, decided to sponsor a naming contest. The group also dreamed up the Select Society of Sanitary Sludge Shovelers, which honors workers who go above and beyond the call of duty, members who wear tiny silver shovels on their left breast pockets, have a special handshake, and a password derived from the first letters of the society's name, pronounced shh. According to John Stauber and Sheldon Rampton in their excellent book, Toxic Sludge is Good for You, WEF members made more than 250 name suggestions for the contest, including Pure Nutri, Bio Slurp, 
black gold, geoslime, skidoo, the end product, humanor, and hoodoo. In 1991, the name change task force settled on the comparatively bland biosolids. By then, many cities were already branding their homegrown product. Chicago sold New Earth. Los Angeles produced Nitrohumus. And from Houston came Huaconite, Milorganite, which Milwaukee had been selling since long before the regulatory renovation, had its own advertising campaign, which included broadcasts at Brewers games. Give your grass the all-you-can-eat buffet it craves this time of year, an announcer sang out. Milorganite organic nitrogen fertilizer is packed with the nutrient home-run power that grass loves. Milorganite buyers were warned against applying the stuff to food-producing soil. In 1982, Maryland scientists found such high levels of cadmium in milorganite that they banned its sale in their state. Today, 54% of the 7.5 million dry metric tons of sewage sludge that the country disposes of each year is processed, relabeled biosolids, and applied to land. The rest is buried in landfills, 28%, incinerated, 17%, and surface disposed without processing, 1%. New York City's own sludge had no advertising budget. In fact, it was hardly known within the state's boundaries. Though it was processed into tiny balls of fertilizer called granulite right inside the city limits. In the Hunts Point neighborhood of the South Bronx by a company known as Niofco, the New York Organic Fertilizer Company, I headed uptown one morning eager to see how this little-known operation handled more sewage than any other pelletization plant in the nation. 10,000 people live in Hunts Point, though it is zoned primarily for industry. The neighborhood includes two dozen waste transfer stations, a raw sewage dewatering facility, the sewage sludge processing plant that I was about to visit, and the largest produce distribution center in the world. Together, these industries generate more than 20,000 diesel truck trips per week. In 1980, Hunts Point was identified as the southern tier of the poorest congregational district in the country. And in the 1990s, the neighborhood became even poorer. More than two-thirds of its residents under the age of 18 live below poverty level. The majority of residents are Latino and black. Their asthma rate is the highest in the country. Early one morning, I buzzed at Niofco's security gate and a scarf-swaddled employee on a small plowing tractor waved me into the snowy parking lot. I noted the air's loamy smell and then Peter Scorizello appeared from out of nowhere. Greeting me in his shirt sleeves in 20-degree weather, he opened the door to a deserted lobby and I took my first deep breath of what amounted to the ultra-concentrated back end of New York City. 
the smell wasn't loamy anymore. I think of it as a musty, cheesy odor, Scorziello said. I considered the comparison for a moment, then rejected it. This wasn't the aroma of any cheese I'd ever sniffed, nor was it the ammoniac smell of a portosan or the earthier tones of the outhouse. It wasn't the chicken or cow manure of my childhood garden. Elusive and remote, the name of the scent lingered just out of my reach, unlike the odor itself, which would stay with me for several hours to come. The second-floor conference room was dominated by a gleaming wood table ringed by metal chairs in the elevator going up. I'd hoped it would offer some respite from the smell, but no, the odor might even have been worse in here. But Scorziello didn't comment on it, so neither did I. My host was a mild-mannered and down-to-earth chemical engineer with a hesitant beard. He had picked the job with Sinagro, Nuofco's parent company, from the newspaper's employment listings just a few months after graduating from college. It was a job. It paid the mortgage, he said with a shrug. He started out as a shift supervisor and now after 10 years managed the plant and its 31 employees. Before New York City had contracted with Niofco to pelletize its biosolids, the company trucked untreated sludge, which is known as cake and classified as Class B fertilizer, 1,700 miles to Colorado, where it was distributed on rangeland. Class B fertilizer sludge has a higher pathogen level than Class A and cannot be applied to land that grows food for human consumption. It's just thousands of square miles and one guy spreading it, Scorziello said, a faraway look in his eyes. I doubted Scorziello was nostalgic for those days as pastoral as they sounded. Spreading New York sludge on open rangeland left a bad taste in many small-town mouths. When New York quit ocean dumping in 1992, it turned to a company called Merco Joint Venture to handle its Vesuviuses of waste. But the company immediately ran into problems. When it tried to deliver its filled-to-the-gills rail cars to Oklahoma, the state banned disposal of out-of-state sludge. When it tried Arizona, the state blocked rail shipments. Finally, after Merco made a donation to Texas Tech University to study the beneficial uses of sludge, a deal to dump in the tiny southwestern town of Sierra Blanca fell into place. According to a Texas Water Commission official quoted in the Dallas Morning News, This thing was pushed to the top of the stack, giving a $1.5 million grant to Texas Tech helped. The company never performed an environmental impact statement, nor did it solicit citizen input. Years ago, I visited this desperately poor town which lies 88 miles southeast of El Paso and was home to just 650 people, about 40% of whom were poor. I was in Texas to report a story about the so-called cleanest town in the country, which happened to be 
just about an hour away if you drove like a Texan. While, quote, chemically sensitive people intolerant to minute amounts of chemical pollutants flocked to Fort Davis to breathe the pristine mountain air in homes they wallpaper with tinfoil to block the possible outgassing of arsenic wood preservatives, residents of Sierra Blanca sucked the rank dust that wafted off Merco's 81,000-acre dump site. Three times a week, 50 flat cars loaded with minimally treated cake rolled up to the Merco property, usually at night. It smelled like death with a chemical odor, said Bill Addington, a local who fought the sludge farm. A state highway ran through the property, but I'd drive 50 miles out of my way to avoid it because my son threw up when we went through. Others blamed the sludge farm, the largest in the world, for their rashes and mouth blisters, their asthma and increased allergies, flus, and colds. While I was visiting, less than a year after the start of dumping, an entire colony of Mexican free-tailed bats, which had roosted under a nearby railroad trestle since the 1880s, was in the midst of annihilation, victims of chemical poisoning. In August of 1994, EPA tests of Sierra Blanca sludge showed levels of fecal coliform at 35 times the acceptable rate. Merco was fined $12,800. And the poo-poo train, as residents called it, kept chugging. Disgusted and sickened, Opponents in 1997 filed a civil rights complaint with the EPA against the Texas Natural Resources Conservation Commission. The complaint was denied, and Merco won a five-year renewal of its sludge permit, a contract worth $168 million, and permission to up its daily dump from 250 tons to 400 tons a day. In 1999, the company was again caught violating federal and state regulations by improperly treating sludge for bacteria and pathogens. This time, it was advised to mix the cake with lime. Finally, nearly a decade after New York sludge had landed in their town, Sierra Blancans got some relief. New York City decided that shipping biosolids 2,065 miles was no longer cost-effective, and it canceled its contract with Merco. Almost immediately, the company declared bankruptcy. The next company to handle the city's sludge would be Scorziello's. Okay, so there's a little education for you in the history of municipal sludge. And today we're hearing stories about PFAs and PFOAs showing up on organic farms in Maine that have now become a toxic wasteland because of about 10 years before being bought by the present organic farmers. Somebody had applied municipal sludge. And it turns out that many of the pollutants that are in this municipal sludge are actually persistent, pernicious, bioaccumulative pollutants, which you need to take a chemistry class to understand what that means. But what it means 
is just like heavy metals and radioactive isotopes, they never break down. They continuously cycle through living systems and cannot be biodegraded by any biological process at all. And that is the nightmare of the American landscape that the American people are handed and in effect, mindlessly, because of the propaganda machine of marketing and advertising, don't even consider to be a problem. So, I'd like to share with you one more piece that is a positive piece about the solutions for our energy system because waste and energy go hand in hand. And to understand how we can begin to take waste streams and at the very least source separate them is essential to retrofitting the infrastructure in ways that are resilient and restorative by getting hazardous waste and toxic waste out of our sewage plants and in effect forcing the hand of private enterprises to deal with their waste on site we can systemically solve the problem of combined waste loads, which at the end of the pipe are problems that are untenable to solve. We must, the American people, put the responsibility for handling hazardous materials on the enterprises that generate those materials on their own properties, no longer allowing them to use our public infrastructure to deal with noxious and hazardous pollutants. They must deal with them themselves. What we will take is what I call good old household poop and pee and cleaners, and those can easily and safely become beneficial fertilizer. The real toxins, the real bad actors are private industries. Some of the worst are going to be dry cleaners, as well as our own military air force bases. These are where some of the systemic contamination of our communities is happening with these long-term carcinogens of PFAs and PFOAs. So by retrofitting the infrastructure, by separating waste streams, and by beginning to create a new energy system that is not owned by private enterprises, but is publicly owned, publicly designed to be by the people and for the people. The city of Burlington, Vermont, is a city I have been studying as a case study in how we can begin to retrofit our infrastructures in the Northeastern Corridor to be more exemplary and to create a improved quality of life as well as a truly reliable energy infrastructure. Burlington is 42,000 people. They are independent of the grid. They have a integrated renewable energy plan. They have a steam to power energy plant called the McNeil Steam Power Plant. That plant uses a 30-acre coppicing woodlot which it can perpetually harvest from in order to create steam power that is over 13% of the city's energy needs. In addition, they have photovoltaic panels on large parking garages at the airport. They have an appropriately sized hydropower electric plant. They have reasonably and well-positioned windmills. And it is the integration 
of a high-quality compost facility, a steam-to-power energy plant, wind energy, and properly placed and thoughtfully positioned solar panels that Burlington, Vermont, is 100% renewable and grid-independent. We have the opportunity to create systems like that throughout this country for our municipalities. And I'm going to read to you as my last section for today from a book called Power from the People, How to Organize, Finance, and Launch Local Energy Products, a Community Resilience Guide by Greg Paul, spelled P-A-H-L. Here are Greg Paul's recommended core principles for community energy. Why community energy? The main goal of corporations is to generate profits, increase shareholder value, and in most cases provide handsome pay and benefits for top management. This is certainly true of most companies in the energy sector. For example, Lee Raymond, ExxonMobil's former chairman and CEO, received a $400 million retirement package in early 2006. In 2008, the company went on to make record profits of $45.2 billion, while most Americans struggled to pay for gasoline at the pump. The main goal of most local communities, in contrast, is to provide for the general welfare of the people who live in them. They spend what limited resources they have at their disposal to offer needed public services. The contrast is stark. Profits versus public good. This is why community energy undertakings make so much sense. They aim not to make a few directors and investors rich, but rather to provide energy security for local residents and businesses and long-term stability in local energy costs, all while providing local jobs and keeping energy dollars circulating in the local economy. High profits and big management benefit packages are not normally part of the picture. The offers local community some flexibility in planning for projects that might not pass Wall Street's test for high returns, but do pass Main Street's test for community benefit. In Chapter 3, we saw that many local renewable energy resources, solar, wind, hydro, biomass, biogas, liquid biofuels, and geothermal, are potentially available to be harnessed by local projects. Not all of these resources are available to all communities, but nearly every community will have at least a few of them. We also saw that many of these resources can be used to generate electricity. A growing number of experts see electricity as the foundation for a completely revised transportation system. The fact that there are multiple opportunities for generating local electricity offers the possibility that at least some of this transport can be locally powered. For urban areas, this normally involves electrified public transport, while rural areas would tend to rely more on plug-in hybrid electric vehicles 
and I would offer to that improved rail and bicycle transport options. The multiple local benefits of community energy initiatives are evident, especially as compared with conventional energy undertakings. Obviously, community energy can't fully address the near-total dependence of the national economy on fossil fuels and its massive existing infrastructure. That issue will take decades and billions of dollars to resolve. That's why we must begin now and really focus on this as a core aspect of our retrofit of the industrial infrastructure. But community energy can at least offer local economies some protection from future disruptions caused by energy supply restrictions or price volatility or both. And it is this price volatility that we are looking at with right now the upheaval between Russia and the Ukraine. Core principles of community energy. Community energy initiatives are not simply smaller versions of the utilities and multinational energy corporations with which we're, fam- with which we're familiar. They are fundamentally different. Below are the four key principles I believe should guide all community energy initiatives. One, community ownership, community benefit. Conventional energy businesses must put profit first. Most community energy projects, however, take a deeper view, ensuring that they meet the broader needs of the community, including the health of the local economy and environment. Local ownership is key to this difference. It not only shifts the results of decision makers' actions into their own backyards, but also reinforces the accountability of those decision makers to the people they are serving. Number two of the core principles of energy. Renewable, local, and distributed. Renewables, by definition, won't run out, so they're ideal for building local energy security. Renewables are generally available across a wide geographic area, making it difficult for a private entity to monopolize the sole point of production and making the energy system more resilient as a whole thanks to its distributed nature. Finally, Because renewables are much lighter on the environment than non-renewables, they're ideal for passing on a healthy, clean community for future generations. This is key. And in my next podcast, I'm going to talk about what does this resilient renewable energy infrastructure look like. And I'll go particularly in depth into the importance of decomposition and anaerobic digesters and solar thermal hot water for connecting what are some of the more popularized forms of renewables to a more grounded solution set. Number three of our core principles of community energy, adaptive resilience. Unlike most private enterprises which can move, merge, or even dissolve when needed, the community is not going anywhere. So, the ability to adapt to changing conditions over decades, even centuries, is essential. 
If done right, community energy initiatives are less vulnerable to external shocks. Whether these be price spikes or breaks in supply chains, as we're looking at right now with the way the global market is being influenced by what's happening with Russia and the Ukraine and our oil economy, and more able to adapt to changing conditions. And number four, conservation first. With the end of cheap and abundant fossil fuels, we have little choice but to reduce the overall amount of energy we consume. And I would add to that with the inherent toxic and hazardous nature of fossil fuels, we have little choice but to reduce the overall amount that we consume. We've grown our modern economy and built our communities on inherited fossil fuels, Transitioning to living off the more modest stream of renewable energy will require cutting back of excess. Yes, wretched excess. But, as most of Europe knows, a very high quality of life is thoroughly possible, in fact probable, and enjoyable with only modest energy consumption. And today, I'm going to end with this note of how it is that we improve our quality of life by cutting down on our consumption of irrational and unneeded goods and energy services. The cheapest barrel of oil is the one that we never buy. The better life, the good life, in fact, is here for us now in the mere opportunity of being, just being, not trying to become anything, simply being, being in the world is the gift of life, becoming is an illusion, we are here now. Focus on your breath. Focus on your friends and your community and give back and you will find that you have all that you need. Andrew Faust, Permaculture Perspectives. Thanks for listening. Let's put our hearts and minds together for a better future and for the people of the Ukraine to maintain their independence and their well-being.